My name is Mike Tucker. I'm one of the elders here. Nice to see you all. You're, we're uh, glad you're here. We welcome you, and uh, we appreciate that you're, you're being here with us this morning. Caleb uh, talked last week, <clears throat> mentioned last week, that I challenged him to resolve in 2024 not to use illustrations from the Lord of the Rings in his sermons. I admire Caleb's resolve in this, but I'm just not sure he can make it all year. I mean, there's a lot of pressure in that. So I do want to relieve some of their pressure from Caleb this morning. And I want to uh, introduce you to someone uh, you don't know. Can we get that picture up here? There he is. <laughs> this is a picture of Glowin, son of Growin. I'm sure you all recognized him. They're from, he's from the, the world of the Lord of the Rings. Glowin was one of the dwarves of Thorin II Oakenshield's company who set out to reclaim the lonely mountain in the quest of Erebor. He was also the father of Gimli, who became a member of the Fellowship of the Ring. Glowin and his son Gimli attended the Council of Elrond in Rivendell, where he greeted Frodo Baggins at the welcome dinner. He recounted the history of the Lonely Mountain and the Kingdom of Dale since Bilbo had left, including Balin's decision to leave the Lonely Mountain and reestablish the ancient dwarfen kingdom of Moriah. At the Council of Elrond, his son Gimli warned of the messengers from Mordor who had been threatening King Dane II, the Ironfoot, seeking news of Bilbo, Frodo, and the One Ring. And I'm sure you all remember that. <laughs> Caleb remembers. Caleb, Caleb's got it memorized. Glowin is a minor character in the world of the Lord of the Rings. I want to introduce you to someone else you don't know. I want to tell you about a godly woman who Nancy and I have uh, asked prayer for from time to time in our groups. Uh, you can take that picture down, thanks. Her name is Sue Fellows. About eight years ago, Sue was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She was told that while the doctors would aggressively treat the cancer, that she could expect that while she may even go into remission, the cancer would return. And they said, almost certainly, the cancer would kill her. But we prayed. Our church in California prayed. They treated the cancer aggressively with traditional treatments and new treatments and ex experimental treatments. And in the process, Sue had to fight with insurance companies and hospitals and doctors while she's fighting the cancer. The treatments worked. She did go into remission. And then the cancer came back. She got treated some more. And it worked. She went into remission. And the cancer came back. Eight years of that. I could tell you about how Sue remained faithful through all of it and how she continued to serve in our church. I asked Sue uh, one time uh, if she would lead a rooted group for women. She immediately told me no. <laughs> she, know, though, she knew though that God had called her to something else. At the time she, God had called her to serve as a core group leader in a ministry called Community Bible Study, CBS. But that's not what I want you to know about Sue. What I want you to know about Sue is that while she served in our church and while she served with CBS, the primary ministry God had called her to in that last, those eight years, was to minister folks like her who would have to spend hours in hospitals, in treatment rooms, and waiting 
rooms who are also fighting cancer. She talked to dozens. Nancy thinks she may probably have talked to hundreds of people, cancer patients and their families, telling them about her great physician, physician Jesus Christ, and that she not only believed but knew that whether or not Jesus healed her on earth, one day she would be fully healed and she'd be with her Savior for eternity. All that while sitting in a chair getting chemo or radiation or sitting in a waiting room or on Facebook telling people about her journey and about Christ. Sue taught me about trusting God. Sue died about two weeks ago. If I were to ask you uh, for a show of hands this morning, how many of you know or knew Sue? There's only one person out here who would raise their hand, be my wife. I know you don't know Sue, no reason you should. But in the world of God's work, while God certainly used Sue, Sue was a minor character. As we've been studying Abraham's life, we were given insight into the path of his learning to trust God. The path wasn't easy for Abraham. He had times of distrust in God, and other times of deep trust that God would do what God said he would do. In Genesis, there are 14 chapters given to Abraham's life. You could say that Abraham is a major character. When we begin to look at Jacob's life, Abraham's grandson, we'll start looking at his life in a couple of weeks, we look at his path of trusting God, we'll see that Jacob in many ways had a harder time than his grandfather learning to trust God. We see a lot about Jacob's life like we did Abraham's. Jacob gets nine chapters in the book of Genesis. You could say that Jacob is also a major character. We're talking about Isaac. We talk about Isaac learning to trust God. There is, we see a significant failure in his life. But that's just about all we see. Except for a little bit of what we're going to see today. Isaac is mentioned in several chapters in Genesis, but as far as his life of faith is concerned, he only gets at most two chapters. Isaac is a minor character. And that's the title of the sermon today, Minor Characters. When we look at Isaac's life today, we're going to see his 20 years of waiting. We're going to see Isaac and God's covenant in the Old Testament, and we're going to see the faith of Isaac in the New Testament. So let's, uh, let's start by reading Genesis 25, 19 through 26. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if, this, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the oldest shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so that they called him his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Let's pray. Father God, whether minor or major, we are all part of the plan that you've 
put together for the redemption of the world. We are all part of what you have called us to, to share the gospel, to be lights in the world for Jesus Christ, and to live for him. We thank you, Father, for that privilege. And may you cause us to remember, Lord, that even though we may be minor characters, we're still used by you. Help us to see that today, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Isaac waiting 20 years. We can look at Isaac's entire story. It can be summed up pretty quickly. In Genesis 21, Isaac is born. In Genesis 22, Isaac is almost sacrificed by Abraham. In Genesis 24, Isaac gets a wife. In Genesis 25, God blesses Isaac. And we see the birth of Isaac's sons. In Genesis 26, Isaac sinned, just like his dad, by lying about his wife calling Rebekah his sister to save his own skin. It is in Genesis 26 that we see that failure of trust in Isaac, but then we also see a little bit of faith there as well. And we see that God blessed him immensely. Genesis 26 also records God coming to Isaac, giving him the promises of descendants and land, and the same promises that God gave to Abraham. Genesis 27 Deception of Isaac by Rebekah and Jacob to gain the blessing of the firstborn for Jacob. And in Genesis 28, Isaac tells Jacob to get a wife from the relatives of Rebekah's family. And then finally in Genesis 35, the death of Isaac is recorded. That about covers it. Some of those passages, there's more about other people than there is about Isaac. And what may be most striking, though, is that while Genesis Genesis records so much about how God developed Abraham's trust, as it does later about how God developed Jacob's trust, there's precious little said about God developing Isaac's trust. And if we look at Isaac's life being recorded in Genesis as short, what happens with Isaac in the passage that we're looking at now is also short. Isaac was 40. He remarried Rebekah. Isaac was barren, or Rebekah was barren. Isaac prayed for Rebekah to have a child. Rebekah became pregnant with twins who struggled inside her. And the twins were born was Isaac, when Isaac was 60 years old. So in that passage, there's only one thing mentioned about Isaac. There's more about Rebekah than Isaac in that passage. And I'm sure if you've, you've noticed this before, but there are similarities between Abraham's life and Isaac's life. We've already mentioned one about Isaac lying like his father Abraham did. And in this passage, we see another similarity. Abraham had to wait 25 years to have a son. Isaac had to wait 20 years. When we look at Abraham, we see that God promised Abraham descendants and land five times, three times before Isaac was born. Abraham had the verbal present promise of God that he would have a son. And it's reasonable to believe that Abraham many times talked with Jacob about everything that God did in his life. and About the events and about the times Abraham failed and about the times uh, Abraham's trust in God was vindicated. And I'm sure Abraham told uh, Jacob about the promises. And about the promises and how they applied to Isaac as well. God did not verbally promise Isaac descendants until after Jacob was born. So Isaac waited 20 years. What was his faith like during that time? Did he trust God without wavering that God would fulfill what was for him, for a time at least, a second-hand promise? 
Or did he vacillate like Abraham between not trusting God and struggling to believe? We have many details about Abraham's vacillating and finally his full trust in God. But as uh, regarding Isaac, as one commentator puts it, the long wait of Isaac and Rebekah for a son is barely visible to readers. Let's read Genesis 25:21 once more. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The demonstration of Isaac's faith is that he prayed. I don't think it was one prayer. I think he prayed many times, many, many times, for Rebekah to have a child. Isaac knew the promise given to Abraham about descendants and about the land. Isaac waited nearly 20 years for God to fulfill that promise for him, praying that God would fill the promise. The Hebrew word translated prayed here is both the sense of intercession and of pleading out of difficult circumstances. The word can be used both to express the prayer and express the response to the prayer, as it is in this verse. The word prayed and the word granted, when God granted the prayer, are the same Hebrew word. It's the kind of prayer that expresses trust in God, however wavering the trust may be. Isaac's prayer, no, it's praying, over nearly 20 years was done in trust in the God who made the promise. Isaac prayed because he believed in God. He believed God. He believed God's promise. That's what faith is. That's what trust is. Believing God's word. It's the trust of the father of the demon-possessed son whom he knew Jesus could heal, but at the same time struggled in his belief, saying to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. We know little of Isaac's journey of trusting God, but we know that he prayed. And we know that his praying expressed his trust that God would do what God said he would do. And then we see Isaac in God's covenant in the Old Testament. We have little information about Isaac's life, but that's not the end of what we know about Isaac, or that, for that matter, Abraham and Jacob. At least 60 times in the Old Testament, the trio are mentioned together in various contexts, but always in relation to the covenant of God that that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that God's promises are not dependent on the trio, but dependent on God as he works in the people of the covenant, in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and in those who believe. Let me give you a few examples. <clears throat> Genesis forty-eight, fifteen and 16. Jacob is speaking here. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who had been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried out, carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow to be a multitude in the midst of the earth. When it came time for Jacob to bless the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob prayed that God would be with Joseph, Joseph's sons in the same way that he was with Abraham and Isaac, as shepherd and as redeemer. Jacob saw that God worked in his life in the same way he saw God work in the life of Abraham. And in the same way, God worked in the life of Isaac. Jacob understood that God's work in him and in them was a matter of accomplishing that work by shepherding. That is, by God caring for them and leading them. God's work was also a matter of redemption. 
that is saving him and them, making him and them and those who came after God's people. Exodus 32, 9 through 14. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I might consume them, in order that I might make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them in the face of the earth, from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jake, and Israel, who is also called Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all of this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So this is when Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the law. And when the people, not knowing what was going on with Moses, decided to make the golden calf and to worship it. It says that God's anger burned hot. That doesn't totally express how angry God was. God was ready to destroy the stiff-necked people and to start over with Moses. God said to Moses, let me alone. It's like God saying, stand aside. Get out of my way. But can you see in that, that command, if you will, to get out of the way, God was actually inviting Moses to intercede? Well, Moses does. Moses intercedes by invoking God's reputation, by calling on God's faithfulness to fulfill what he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God called on God to do exactly what God had promised he would do. The covenant promises God made with Isaac, as well as with Abraham and Jacob, will be fulfilled. And then Deuteronomy 29, 13 through 15. That he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you. And as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here today, uh, with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. Moses here is speaking to the Jews just before they were going to enter the promised land. They are being called to abide by the Mosaic covenant, that is, the covenant of law, what we call the Old Covenant. Yet in the same way, the covenant made with Isaac was personal, so is this covenant. God says that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God. As with the patriarchs, this covenant was meant to establish a personal relationship, a personal connection between the people and God, including those who are not yet God's people. And then Jeremiah 33, 23 through 26. I'm going to read this out of the NET version. The Lord's message came to Jeremiah another time. You have surely noticed what these people are saying, haven't you? They are saying the Lord has rejected the two families of Israel and Judah that he chose. So they have little regard that my people will ever again be a nation. But I, the Lord, make the following promise. I have made a covenant concerning uh, a covenant governing the coming of day and night. I have established the fixed laws governing, governing heaven and earth. Just as surely as I have done this, so surely I will never reject the descendants of Jacob. 
nor will I ever refuse to choose one of my servants, my servant David's descendants to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Indeed, I will restore them and show mercy to them. At the time Jeremiah wrote this, the northern kingdom of Israel had long been uh, destroyed and exiled by the Assyrians. Presently, the southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem itself, was under siege by Babylon and would soon be destroyed. Jeremiah had already prophesied, prophesied that Jerusalem would fall. And in chapter 31, God, through Jeremiah, said that he was going to make a new covenant where God would put his law on their hearts and on their minds. That speaks of the new covenant that was enacted by Christ. There was despair in Jerusalem, with the Jews complaining that God had rejected the Jewish nation, the very people God had chosen. They were saying that God had forgotten the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But God responds with a promise. He's saying, just as he established the laws that govern the heaven and the earth, the skies and the land, that he would never reject the descendants of Jacob. That, in fact, there would be a descendant of David who would rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That points to Jesus Christ. The covenant God made with Isaac now takes on an eternal dimension and points to the new covenant, the new covenant enacted by Christ. And then we have the faith of Isaac in the New Testament. It's not just the Old Testament we hear about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The New Testament relies on them to tell, in part, the story of trust and redemption. Matthew 22, 31 through 33, Jesus is speaking here. He says, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The Sadducees, who taught there was no resurrection, came to Jesus to test him with a question about marriage in heaven. Jesus answered the question, but he went much further to get to the far more important point. Quoting Exodus 3.6, where God called Moses at that bush that was burning but not consumed, Jesus reminded them that God said he is the God of the living, including Isaac, demonstrating that not only will there be a resurrection, but that God has an active, present, redemptive relationship with those who would be raised, including Isaac, those who trusted God. But the converse is true. Another time, Jesus was asked a question about how many will be saved. The questioner was likely thinking about the Jewish belief that all Israel would be saved simply because they're Jews, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Luke 13, 23 through 30. And someone said to him, Lord, those who, uh, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen to shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not where you know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, I do not, uh, I'm sorry. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God 
And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. This narrow door is the door of faith. The door that is trusting God based on the work of Christ. No amount of piety or self-righteousness or association with Jesus has anything to do with entering through that door. A person is not saved because he goes to church, or because she gives money, or because they meet a need of someone. A person is saved because he and she, as John the Apostle said, believe in his name. All those other things that people do, give money, meet people's needs, go to church, come out of gratitude for what God has done. Jesus uses the word strive here. Strive is a word that implies the effort of heart and mind. It's not a matter of doing, but of believing. Isaac believed God. And that's why he, as well as Abraham and Jacob, will be at that Messianic banquet, along with all those who believe, from east and west and north and south. We made much of the idea earlier that Isaac is a minor character. In his story, we see almost nothing about his faith, about how he trusted God. And we might wonder, well, what kind of faith did he have? Hebrews eleven seventeen through 20. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and, uh, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Hebrews 11 has been called the Hall of Faith. Abraham gets a lot of press in that chapter. And, but look carefully at this passage. Abraham is commended for his faith, trusting that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. It's because Abraham had received or believed the promises of God. The, the author says, by faith, Abraham. What about Isaac? The author of Hebrews says, by faith, Isaac. The author of Hebrews shows us that the faith of Isaac is on the same level as the faith of Abraham. You might say that Abraham's faith uh, believed God to do a fantastic miracle. And all Isaac did was pray. How can it be said that they have the same faith? It's the same faith, it's the same trust, because both believed that God would do what God said he would do. In Galatians, Paul's plead, Paul pleads with his readers to believe the gospel that he first preached to them and not to believe what he calls another gospel, that is a gospel of working to achieve salvation. Paul makes several appears, appeals in the letter to believe the gospel of Christ. And as he, as he concludes those appeals, to trust Christ, he says this, Galatians 4, 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Promise is the promise of God. Abraham believed the promise of God. Isaac, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, also believed the promise of God. We are children of the promise, like Isaac, if we believe. As I like to say, that God will do what God says he will do. Jesus said this, John 6:40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Trust 
is believing. Faith is believing. Faith is believing that God will do what he says he will do. Faith is believing that what Jesus said about believing in him. Well, I'd like you to consider a couple of things. First, I'd like you to consider that most believers in Christ have trouble from time to time trusting God. If I were to ask for a raise of hands, just about everybody's hand would go up. We trust that God will give us eternal life because of the work of Christ, because of the work of Christ, but there are times we have difficulty trusting for provision or for healing or for strength or for endurance or for the salvation of another. I would suggest to you that one big way to demonstrate trust in God is to pray. Sometimes we may think, well, I'll just steel myself against this problem. I'll stand up strong, be like a stone, steadfast, showing that I trust God. But that's not really trusting God. It's trusting you. And when we do that, we crumble. Because we do not have the strength to be a stone. I encourage you to pray. Isaac prayed. For nearly 20 years he prayed. But he prayed trusting God. And I think it's safe to say that there were many times Isaac struggled with his trust in God. But he still prayed. Now, I'm not saying that you should be like Isaac. Not a bad thing, but that's not the point. Our attention is on Christ. In whom Isaac, who Isaac points to. It's in prayer that we call out to God, whether desperate like the man with the demon-possessed son, or confident like Abraham, who believed that God could raise the dead. It's in prayer that we express the trust, trust in the one who is worthy of trust. It is in prayer that we express that uh, we surrender and give up any thought of being a stone or fixing the problem on our own. Not saying that we should pray and then sit and do nothing. Rather, I'm saying that we trust the Lord based on, and based on that trust. We say, Lord, I trust you with this. And when we trust like that, when we surrender like that, we can rest that God will act. And we can act, we can move on, we can make our decisions based on the trust we have in Jesus Christ. It may take 20 years or more, but God will accomplish his will in you and through you. Second thing I'd like you to consider is that there's only a few people in the whole history of Christianity, people like Paul and Luther, Spurgeon, Wesley, Moody, Wilberforce, Schaefer, Lewis, Crosby, Bonhoeffer, Graham, who might be called major characters. And there might have been one or two names in there that you don't recognize, and that's okay. Isaac was a minor character. Sue Fellows was a minor character. You and I are minor characters. God uses minor characters. God uses minor characters in his plan of redemption as much as he uses major characters. Just like God used Isaac. Just like he used two fellows. Just like he uses you. As a believer in Christ, while you may be a minor character, God works in you to advance his plan of redemption. God chose you. Let me say that again. God chose you to advance his plan of redemption. God chose you, just like God chose Isaac, to advance the plan of redemption based on his promises that lead to Jesus Christ. Remember, it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Harry, and Jacob. Or Abraham, 
fill in the blank in Jacob. God called Isaac to his part in God's plan and made sure that Isaac did what God called him to do, despite the stumbles and failures. As a minor character, like Isaac, you are critical to God's plan. But while critical, God will provide everything necessary for you that you will be used by him to fulfill his promise and his plan in you. If God has called you to him and you are one of those minor characters, God's going to make sure that his plan in you will be accomplished. The remarkable thing is that because God is sovereign, he uses you and molds you and builds your trust in him when you stumble, he repairs you and then continues to use you. Jesus is the trailblazer of our faith. He showed us the way. God begins and finishes the work he plans to do us in, a, in us minor characters. Paul knew this. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship. God has made you his project. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God, listen, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians 1, 3 through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for all of you, for you all. Paul's from the south. For you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, and if I might add, he who began a good work in you minor characters, will bring it to, the complete, to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for uh, using us minor characters. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you, Father, that we can fall on our knees or stand with our hands raised and pray to you and say, God, you need to do this. I can't. God, I trust you to do this. I can't. Thank you, Lord, that even when we fall, you take us minor characters and you pick us up and you dust us off and then you say, let's do some more work. Thank you, Lord, that your plan of redemption will be accomplished. And amazingly, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't even know why you do it this way. But you're going to accomplish that plan using minor characters. We thank you for that. May we trust you, Lord. May you, you remind us to trust you at every point in our lives. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.